This is hard, yes? Yes. What I would like to do today is three things. Number one, I would like to review the basic flow of the ideas that we have up until now. Because when we flesh out ideas and we talk about them to really get past just the language so that the ideas start, even if they don't click, at least we start getting a feel for what we're talking about, it's very often that after that things just feel like a big mess. So I'd like to kind of consolidate. After that, I want to talk about a new idea that we have not discussed, which is not explicit, but is necessary to understand what's being said. In other words, it's the idea that's underneath the surface. Um, and it's also a general idea when talking about Hasidus. Um, and it builds off something we said yesterday. That's the second thing I want to do. If, after all that time allows, I would like to resume learning the text inside. Mm. Um, I have a sneaky suspicion that may not happen, but we'll see. Okay. So the context that we're working from is that the Alter Rebbe asserts based on um, classical sources in chapter 20, that Hashem remains absolutely unchanged in the creation of the world. That the state that he was prior to creation is exactly the same state after creation. Right. And the thing about him that we would consider to be altered would be what I call his aloneness, right? The quality of being um, the only being, right? Which we developed and we talked about, right? So that aloneness quality. And the basic idea in chapter 20 right, is that the worlds carry no significance. The, the Hebrew is kolei chashiv. They count for nothing. And the absence and then subsequent introduction of something that counts for nothing does not actually change the state of aloneness. And that was a simple idea. In order to explain how insignificant the worlds are, the creations are, the Alter Rebbe bases that off of the idea that the creations um, owe their entire being to the word of God. Right? So the creations, therefore, are no more significant than the word of God. So we shift from discussing the significance of the creations to discussing the significance of the word of God. Right? And the Altar establishes the insignificance of the word of God through an analogy to a human being. And that insignificance has three basic levels. The insignificance of the spoken word to the faculty of speech. The insignificance of the spoken word to the language of thought and the insignificance of the spoken word and the language of thought being language to the emotional and cognitive experiences from which language is derived. Okay. The insignificance of the spoken word to the faculty of speech is that it is 
limitless, that it's inexhaustible. So the value of any word, right, is zero because you can continue to say words ad infinitum. When you move to thought, the insignificance is found in that the thought is the source and life force. So the word that are, words that are spoken have previously existed in thought, so it's redundant. And the sense that there is any significance to the words, the words carry any meaning, um, depends entirely of the alignment of thought with the speech, right? If one's speaking without aligning their thoughts, right, then the words are hollow and empty. And then finally, when we observe that, that words and thought are both in language, and that that language actually derives from these raw experiences such as desire, which is non-linguistic, so then the entire notion of thought and uh, being language and consequently speech becomes entirely irrelevant, okay? And so we then apply that um, to Hashem. We say the word of God compared to his power to generate those words is insignificant because he can generate them infinitely, right? It's, ins it's insignificant because those words are just based on and receiving life from a higher level of divinity known as God's thought. And ultimately the form of, the, of God's w words and God's thought is completely irrelevant to the true revelation of God analogous to the difference between um, language and actual human experiences, even though the divine thought and divine speech generate from the true revelation of God, or generate from the true revelation. Right? And so if I summarize all of that, basically what I'm saying is that when you look upon the word from a, from a more internal place, the spoken word becomes insignificant. And so if I end chapter 20, my understanding is that God is looking upon that word and sees that word as insignificant because it costs him nothing, it's redundant, it needs to receive life from a higher level, and ultimately it's in a form which is not truly capture the a revelation of God at all. And therefore, whether those words are in fact uttered and create a world or not is irrelevant. Okay. The flaw or the gap in that idea is that that renders the words insignificant only to who? To God, right? Just like the spoken word is only irrelevant as we go deeper into the speaker. But where are those spoken words located? They're located outside the speaker, right? And so in chapter 21, the al Rebbe wants to shift the, the discussion from how God would look at the word to the actual status of the word itself, okay? So rather than it being, how do I look at something else? It's what is the state of that thing for itself? Okay. Which is an idea that I'm going to come back to shortly. So then chapter 21 starts off with this assertion that God cannot actually speak. Right? Because speech is understood as the placing of those words outside of the person, right? As, as he says, that the, 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 the breath emitted in speaking something can be sensed and perceived as a thing apart, right? And there is no notion of outside of God, right? 
So any language God uses really shouldn't be considered to be speech. At best, it should be considered to be something analogous to thought, right? Which is internal language. But yet, we do call it speech. And we call it speech because it bears one technical similarity to speech, which is that speech is something which reveals what is hidden to others, meaning it is experienced by someone other than the speaker. Unlike thought, which is only experienced by the thinker, right? So too, if God thinks, whatever his thoughts create are only real to whom? To himself. But if God were then to speak, then that would be experienced not just by himself, that would be experienced by some other being. Now, that would be taking place within him. Okay? And that's where we ended up yesterday, yes? Does that kind of put things... Okay, now... Are there any questions on what I said today just now? Because if there are, I want to make sure that we, we address them. If everything I said sounds, I'm going to say fully understood, but familiar, reasonable, orderly, then we'll move on. Yes? Yeah, I have a question about any type of thing that's more insignificant. Like, I understand the first one, like, faculty speech compared to... Speech itself, like right. no cough left. Um, but I kind of am getting lost in the distinction between the second and the third. Like the second one was about the example of cake, like desiring. Right, the, the, right. So, so, so let, let's use let's use example of cake all the way through. Okay. If I say the word cake, that in no way means I'm less capable of speaking. Yeah. So the spoken word cake means nothing to that yeah. on that level. Moreover, the word cake that I spoke was already part of my vocabulary. It already existed in my thought. Moreover, whatever meaning, I don't mean the actual meaning of the word, but like the significance of saying the word cake comes not from the saying of the word cake, but how much I'm thinking thought of cake as I'm saying it. And it's through that 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 conveys any sort of meaning into the spoken word, any sort of vitality into the spoken word. So it's both redundant and hollow. Yeah. Okay, and finally, okay, let's move just to the word cake itself, which again originates in thought. The reason why I thought the word cake appears in my thought is because of a desire for cake, whether in this case to use cake as an example or I actually desire cake. But the desire is not linguistic, right? The desire for cake is not doesn't have the word cake as part of it. So in it... It has within it something that generates the word cake in my thoughts. But that same thing could have generated the Hebrew word uga, right? Or, or cake in some other language I don't speak, right? And so whatever that, whatever, whatever the word cake is, as it was part of the original experience of desire, isn't the word cake at all. Okay? And, and that's kind of the ultimate sense of insignificance is that, that there's not even a place for that. Okay, so you see the three levels clearer now? Oh, okay, those are Those are the three levels. There, so you can make a subtle division between the desire for cake mm-hmm. and the awareness that cake is good. If you read the text carefully, he does. So you could read this as four levels. I'm choosing to teach it as three because the main point is the shift from the human experience, right, which is cognitive and emotional, to the thought and speech, which is linguistic. But it is true that if you, if you learn this more carefully, 
there is a there is a difference between the the thoughts vis-a-vis the emotions versus the thoughts vis-a-vis the the the, the, the kind of the knowledge. But I don't want to go into that. I, I did. I mentioned it in an earlier class that there is that difference, and I didn't elaborate on it, and I decided not to because I think it's there's a limit to how much stuff we can we can have in our heads at one time. Okay, good. Okay. Now, I'm going to cheat because I feel like sometimes when you when you have when you have an abstract idea and you don't aren't you know, cursed with being an intellectual, so you don't really see the value of abstract ideas for themselves. Um, you need to have some stake in why you should care about the abstract idea. Like, what does it matter? So what I'm going to do is I'm going to start with the end, which is not even in this chapter. It's, it's addressing things in later chapters. Um, create a question, then work back to the idea that I want to talk about, which is necessary to understand what's happening in this chapter. I am sure many of us have heard the idea that when we do mitzvahs, we elevate the world. Yes? You've heard this idea? Mm-hmm. Okay. Now, what does that mean? In other words, I, I put on tefillin every day. So there was a cow. Someone killed the cow and turned its skin into tefillin and I put the tefillin on. What does it mean that my, by me putting on those tefillin the cow skin has been elevated. Are you making a bracha on it? No, no, I don't actually make a bracha. I don't need to make a bracha on it. I mean, you should make a bracha when you do mitzvahs anyway, but I, it would be a mitzvah even if I didn't make a bracha. I put on the tefillin, it's a mitzvah, I elevate the cow skin. What does that mean the cow skin is elevated? the idea is intrinsically connected to the action. Meaning, like, there is more to the action than I'm just putting it, like, as, you know, as a physical act of putting it on. I am, like, implying it into it. No, that's not, that's, that's, I'm sorry, that's very wrong. The idea is that just putting the tefillin on is good enough. That elevates the cow skin. Like that, that, the idea is that you, when you do the mitzvah, you elevate it, regardless of your mental state, regardless of, as long as you fulfill the halachic requirements. Now, we could debate whether I need to be aware that it's a mitzvah or not as a halachic requirement. That's a separate issue. But in as much as fulfilling the halachic requirements, when you light a Shabbos candle, you are elevating the candle in the match. Oh, that's just... So what does that mean? In what sense? I mean, I realize you don't match you. You strike it upward, so it's going higher. But like, 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 what does it mean? It's elevated. Okay. I'm using a physical thing to connect to God. Okay. So one second. So if I use a physical thing for a, what I'm a, a noble purpose, does that make that physical thing more noble? I'm, I'm, I'm asking you, like, like, what, right, like. For instance, if I take this picture, right, and I use this picture to bring water to people who are, who are um, what do you call it, dying of thirst, which is a noble purpose, right? Yeah. I wouldn't say that somehow I've elevated the picture. I mean, I've done a noble act, and it's very good that I had the picture because I need a way to get the water there, although if people are dying of thirst, there's not enough water in this, but whatever. <laughs> but, like, the fact that something leads to a noble end, I mean, how is there any change in the state? State of that thing, of that picture, right? Do you understand my question? Like, like yeah. it's something we throw around all the time without stopping to think. Yeah. Oh wait, is it because everything has a godly source and you're connected, a godly spark and you're connected to the source? Okay, so now we're, now we're, 
we're moving somewhere, right? So now I wanna, I wanna stop and, and make a big deal about the shift that you made. When we say you're elevating the thing, we're not talking about the actual thing, we're talking about what you call the godly spark in the thing. Yes. So, when I put on tefillin, is the actual physical leather that I can touch with my hands and see with my eyes, is that being elevated? No, no. In fact, is it changing at all? No. Yeah. It's not. I mean, it's changing if you turn it into tefillin, but once it is tefillin, it's not changing. It's not changing location when I wrap it around. Maybe like. By the way, if you would like to change the physical world by manipulating godly energy, the way you do that is you pray to God um, to like, heal the sick and stuff like that. That's a different discussion. We're talking about mitzvahs. Okay, so we're already not talking about the physical thing. We're talking about what you call the godly spark in it. Okay. Now, this godly spark, what does it mean that it is being elevated? It's being connected to its source. It's being connected to its source. So when I put on tefillin, there's some sparks in that leather, some, some spiritual entity, yeah? And it's being connected to its source. Okay. No. I'll come back to that in a second. Okay. So it's being connected to its source, yeah? Okay. Now, hold that in your head. Different idea. There is an idea in Hasidus, which I'm not going to explain and elaborate now, because um, we're in the middle of it, but let's just take the idea for granted. That as far as God's perspective is concerned, the only thing that really exists is? So as far as God is concerned, it, where's that spark before I do the mitzvah? If, as far as God is concerned, there's only God, right? So God looks at that spark, and how does God perceive that spark? Is it disconnected from him and needs no. to be reunited? No, okay. So for God, like, there's no point in me doing the mitzvah because like, for God, everything's already united with him. It's all just God anyway, right? And I'm being very vague about that, but okay. Yeah. And let's look at what it's about for me. When I put on the tefillin, I have, to, I have to be honest with you. you don't I don't see any sparks moving around. <laughs> so we have this interesting question. Who's right, who exactly is being elevated here? So in the, the spark for me... What you're talking about, and you know, if you're talking about God's perspective, do you see? Do you see the problem here? Yeah. Okay. I'm going to now present a, a, a different problem. It's the same problem, but but differently. You're familiar with the idea that when we do mitzvahs, we bring the divine presence down into the world, the shechina into the world. Okay. Yeah. So now you can see the problem already. Mm-hmm. I do mitzvahs. You do mitzvahs. You sing any shechina? Okay, so apparently he's not talking about bringing the Shekhinah to our experience because we're not experiencing any Shekhinah. Um, what about God? No, God's, yeah, for God, it's all united with him anyway. So exactly who is benefiting from the Shekhinah that we're bringing into the world? Who is this world that's getting the Shekhinah? It's gonna be. It's going to be? Yeah. So, th- so when I do mitzvahs now, there's no Shekhinah brought into the world. You just can't see it, but it's there. What does it mean that it's there? And what, now here's the thing, I want to ask you a question. If I turn on the lights, what changes in the room? I granted things aren't physically different, right? But you can see, right? There is, right? If you bring something, there is some actual change. It affects something, right? When we bring the, if we bring the Shekhinah to the world and it's only going to affect things like, you know, I don't know, after Mashiach comes, whatever that means, then it's not really here. 
I'm going to summarize this problem very, very simply. Most of what Hasidus says makes very little sense if the only two perspectives that you have are God's and ours. So you have God's perspective, right? So for God, God is alone. God, is, right? There's only God. There's nothing other than God. And it's all united with God. There's nothing outside of God, right? And all there is is God, blah, 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 blah. So like, what, what exactly are you doing with the mitzvahs? And if it's just to us, well, I mean, that's clearly not true because, you know, we have to read it in texts and struggle to understand it and hopefully believe that that's what's happening. So clearly it's not talking about... Bre- so there's an issue here. Does it make sense? No, it's not actually. Now, I, I would like to tell you something. There are two ways. I'm going to do it on a slight tangent and then I'm going to come back. But there are two ways of learning um, Hasidus for the purposes of this class. There's one way which I'm going to call the correct way, the true way, the authentic way. And there's the other way which I'm going to call um, the more popular way. The more popular way is to take everything in Hasidus and make it psychological. So let me give you an example. Okay. It says in Kabbalah, in this quote in Hasidus, that when you sin, you create um, evil angels or klipa or whatever word you like to use. Um, and they... What? They judge against you, they harass you, they make it difficult for you to connect to God. So if you were to like convey this in a, to, in a kind of a popular way, right? You would say like something like, well, obviously when you sin, what does that do to your psyche? You do something wrong, right? Something wrong. It desensitizes you, right? You have the memory of that, right? There's all sorts of stuff, right? And, um, you know, it's kind of like, you, on, on some sense, you've like traumatized your soul and you have to like, whatever, right? So you see like, like you can kind of just, you don't have to talk about the maybe there's this actual being a, 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 a evil angel a demonic creature that you created through your sin that is able to in, to enter into your psyche and torture you and in fact if you make enough of them and they're stronger they can actually become embodied and become living animals and people that will cause you harm in the physical world right see that's like a whole different thing right and that makes a lot of modern people very uncomfortable to say stuff like that. But guess what the truth is? That's what the sources actually say. The, there's like actual beings that we generate through our sins. And those beings, what do they do? They prey upon us. And the first place they prey upon us is in our psyches. And if they can get strong enough, what do they do? They take physical form. That's right. This is, the, now, and by the way, um, just to give you an example, this is how Hasidus explains, the, there's a verse, um, I never can remember verses by heart when they're in Daphne for some strange reason. So just let me consider. My mind goes blank every time I try and quote a verse from <laughs> So weird. Okay. Okay. Okay, so the verse says, Ki Hashem. Behold, they are your enemies, God. Okay, so this is referring to the idea that when we struggle 
um, to, to grow spiritually, the evil inclination fights against us and sometimes causes us to sin and thus producing those enemies I just mentioned. And then the verse continues. Um, um, behold, your enemies will be destroyed. Which they translate this as, ah, all evildoers will be scattered. Which seems repetitive, because once God's enemies are destroyed, why do you need to scatter the evildoers? And Hasidus says this is the difference between whether the evil beings we create through our sins merely torment us on the spiritual level, or they also have taken physical form. And there's, for instance, there's, the, you notice that David Melech in Psalms always talking about being saved from his enemies. Why are those Psalms in prayer? Because we have actual enemies that we've created who are now trying to prevent us from getting close to God. And this is an example of like, <laughs> what I mean that, 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 if you, that sometimes, putting everything just in our heads, psychologizing everything, so it fits with like our more modern notions of things, you can get away with it up to a point, but it really, it, 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 it sh- makes Hasidus shallow and, and loses, you the depth of what's happening and the integrity of what's happening is gonna go missing. So here's the thing. It is not the case, and I'm sorry to say this, that when any of us do mitzvahs, anything is going to change in our experience of God. Now, it's not saying that cannot happen, it could happen, but it is not a given. And it is also true that from the perspective of God's being, there is only God, there is only was God, and there only will be God, and that's all there is to it. So then to whom is all this elevating stuff referring to. So you mentioned it's to the spark, right? The spark has its own perspective. So it's like an ashama, right? So think about this. If I am praying and you are a completely insensitive person and you just look at me physically. Um, so prayer, as our sages say, is an avaydish believe It's an internal thing, right? I might be soaring to great heights, but I'm not physically moving at all because the movement is happening within my soul. There's nothing changing in my body, right? But it does change, of course, the way I relate to my body. But you looking at my body see nothing. That makes sense? So here's the thing. The, that spark that you mentioned, that spark feels like something. And how does it feel? That spark in that piece of cow leather, how does it feel? That divine spark, how does it feel? It feels disconnected. It feels like it's in exile. And when you do a mitzvah, what happens? And it goes back to its source. So then there's no spark Well, no. So here's going back to what I said about prayer. When I pray, my soul ascends upward. Doesn't mean my soul physically has to depart from my body. No. Well, that, I don't want to get into all the technicalities. Well, the thing I want to introduce here is that it's that we have to give. I'm going to use the technical words. We have to give godliness a perspective, not God, not us. Godliness. All this stuff: the spark, the lights, the vessels, the shin, all this stuff. Okay. In other words, like this. To put that back in arc, the context. 
There's the way the speaker looks at the spoken word, which we said if the speaker looks at the spoken word, the more the speaker goes in to themselves and then looks at the spoken word, what happens to the spoken word? It becomes less and less and less and less, right? Mm -hmm. Then there's the spoken word as it is perceived by the audience, which is that the spoken word, right, is something which seems outside the speaker, something that can impact, can be heard, can be experienced by an other, right, the audience. Whose perspective have we not really discussed? The spoken word. What is, how do God's words feel about themselves? How, what is their sense of reality? They're just observer. I, I, I don't want you to answer the question. That's what I want you to, very often when Hasidus is talking about something, it's not talking about the thing. And it's not even talking about God. It's talking about a particular, what we'll call, and I hate this word, but I'll use it anyway, level of godliness. Okay? So, outside of the, the, the text for a second. This is going better than I thought, by the way. <laughs> We're going to get to the text. Okay. Let us say um, that we open the book of Kabbalah. Okay. And in the book of Kabbalah, it said that when we do a mitzvah, we create a unity between the Holy One, blessed be He, and the Shekhinah. Okay. And we look a little bit more, Kabbalah, and we say, oh, the Holy One, blessed be He, that refers to certain levels of godliness, which are coded masculine, and the Shekhinah refers to other levels of godliness called feminine. You think, okay, that's very nice. I mean, like, I'm not experiencing any divine revelation. Like, for God, it's not like God is becoming more godly when I do the mitzvah, so what exactly is going on? And what's the answer? Well, the answer is like this. Let us say you were married. Let us say you're married. Okay. What would it mean? What would it mean to be unified? Well, I would say that in a very simple thing, that's what we say in English is being on the same page. Right? So your husband has his perspective on reality and you have your perspective on reality, right? And you can negotiate that and compromise and do all sorts of things. But but something interesting can happen, which is you can adopt his perspective and he can adopt your perspective in such a way that you now actually form one joint perspective, right? And that creates this deep sense of togetherness, of oneness, right? It makes you feel like you're unified with each other, right? Now, this doesn't make any sense if we don't allow for the fact that you each have your own kind of perspective, right? We just treat you as physical objects, Right, then there's no notion of being unified unless we're talking about procreation. Make sense? Okay, so now, let's say we have, again, two, two divine levels, right? One is called the Holy One, Blessed Be He, which is coded masculine, and one is called the Shechina, which is coded feminine. They each have what? That's right. And are they the perspective of God? No. Are they the perspective of us? No. Also no but they're different. Okay, now, just, this again is not in the, the, the text here right now. We're gonna come back to the text, but just so the idea is not left completely hanging. Um, the Holy One, blessed be He, which is certain level of divinity, you know, its perspective is to really try and impose the divine truth on everything. And what's the divine truth as we're learning? That the only thing that's real 
Yeah, God's the only thing that matters, right? So the Holy One, blessed be He, are certain d- divine manifestations, and their perspective is: we have a mission. Our mission is to share the divine truth that there's only God. Okay, and then there's this other divine manifestation called the Shechina, which is coded feminine. And uh, what what's what's the Shechina's perspective? No, there's a place. There is a place for God to have a relationship with other creatures. You see, they have a problem getting along. Like they're not a, like they have a shalom bias issue here, right? Certain like they're kind of, so. There's God, and God just like you know God. He's up there, the essence of God. And then there's us, and we're down here, and we're kind of oblivious to God. And God, for God, there's all there is, and right. But then there's these these what we'll call them the male spheros, and they're saying what? What's their perspective? The truth must be known that there's only God. right. That's their perspective on things, right? And then there's the female sphere, and and her perspective is. Right, that God has a place for others. Now, what's supposed to happen as a result of us doing mitzvahs? Unite these two. Yeah, they're supposed to have shalom bias and get along. And this, this was called in Kabbalah a yichud. Is this, like this is literally the l'shem yichud. And if we can achieve that, they can now serve as a conduit between who and who? Us and God, right? Because after all, if they can work that out between the two of them then somehow they can be the bridge for us to see things from God's point of view and God's point of view to accept our place and whatever, okay? But you see how none of this really makes sense unless I'm able to treat them as having their own perspective? Okay. So that's the correct way. That is the correct way. So in other words, and this really throws people off. And by the way, it's not just those people, it is actually dangerous, yeah, I was going to say, it's not like there's multiple gods. Right, exactly. And by the way, if you read Kabbalah, um, I have a sitter here. Shall I read some Kabbalah? Mm-hmm. I'll read some Kabbalah. There's some Kabbalah. Um, I'll read some Kabbalah from the Zohar first. This is, this is from um, Arab Shabbos. And Chabad, the custom is to say this Arab Shabbos. Um, as most, most Hasidim have a custom to say this Arab Shabbos. But I, I am... Ashkenazim do not, and I don't know the custom of Sephardim and, and Avis and Mizrach. Okay, where is it? People who are not really from Spain, but they follow the same, basically. Yeah, well, it's good. it becomes a politically correct issue here. Okay, so this is, this is from the Zohar, okay? And I'm just going to translate it. Now, here's the thing. I'm sure they, they messed with the translation because that's what they do. Okay, here we go. Okay. Just as they, the six spherot, unite above into oneness, so do does she unites below into the mystery of oneness. So to be with them above, unity paralleling unity. The Holy One, blessed be he, who is one above, does not take a seat upon the throne of glory until she enters the mystery of oneness similar to his, to be oneness corresponding to oneness. This, as we've stated, is the esoteric meaning of the Lord is one, that's referring to the male part, and his name is one, that's referring to the female part. The mystery of Shabbos, she, meaning the feminine sphere, is on Shabbos united with the mystery of the oneness so that the supernal mystery of oneness may rest upon her. This takes place during the evening prayer of Shabbos, for then the holy throne of glory merges with the mystery of oneness and is ready for the holy transcendent king to rest upon it. 
As Shabbos arrives, she merges into this oneness and is separated from the other side. That's evil. And all strict judgments are severed from her. And she remains in unity with the holy light and crowns herself with many crowns for the holy king. Right? So, you know, like before you go out on a date with your husband, you want to get up and dress nicely. Right? So, this is called Kigavna. It's after, it's the, it's right after, right after the end of Kabbalah Shabbos on uh, 160. Then all powers and wrath and adversaries flee from her and vanish, and no other power reigns in any of the worlds. Right? Because when you're going on a date with your husband, you don't really want to have work on your head, do you? <laughs> I'm not kidding. Like, that's actually, like, would be the, the corresponding analogy. Her countenance is raided by a supernal light, and she crowns herself here below. And what does she use as her crowns? With the holy people. Yes, right. We become the crown. All of whom are crowned with new souls. And then the count, uh, commencement of the prayer is to bless her with joy and radiance. And that is why we say, um, Baruch Hu, and continue saying. So, yeah. You can, like, definitely... Like, that makes no sense unless you're, like, ascribing some degree of, like, point of view to, to these different things, right? Okay, now let's go a little bit further. Um, I'm not going to do the whole one here, but there is a Kabbalistic poem written by the Arizal for each of the three meals of Shabbos. Actually, before that, there's a Kabbalistic... Uh, I'll, I'll do three things. There is a, there is a Kabbalistic um, um, invitation that you do before each of the three meals of Shabbos. So the Friday night meal is, prepare the meal of perfect faith, which is the light of the Holy King, Prepare the meal of the king. This is the meal of the chamber of apples. And the small face and the ancient holy one come to join her in the meal. So whose meal is it Friday night? It's her meal. By the way, if you go to the Shabbos day, the text is slightly different. All right. It's, yeah. Everybody gets a different meal. So there are three, there are three, there are three, I don't want to say people, but there are three individuals at this meal. The chamber of holy apples, the small face, and the ancient one of days. And whose meal is it? It's the chamber of apples, because that's a feminine. Don't ask me why the chamber of apples is feminine. Malchus. Yeah. And then on the day meal, on the day meal, it's the ancient one of days. And then the afternoon meal, it's the small face. Anyway, they're like having a little party and like, who's inviting who to whose house? <laughs> Like, that's what's described. Anyway, so the Arizal's poem reads like this. Okay. I will cut away, and the implication here is all the forces of evil, with songs of praise in order to enter the, the holy gates of the chamber of apples. We invite her to the festive table with the beautiful candelabra shining on our heads. <laughs> okay. So, so far we're talking about inviting who to our Shabbos meal? The chamber of apples, which is the feminine part of godliness. Between right and left, the bride approaches, adorned in ornaments, jewels, and robes. Okay, now, now that she's here, her husband embraces her. So now the male part comes. You can see like this could be very dangerous if you don't know what you're doing. But on the other hand, you do have a problem is that none of these things make sense if the only two points of view you're going to allow are the perspective we actual human beings are consciously having of reality and God's perspective of reality. Because God's perspective of reality is there's only God. And our perspective of reality is we don't experience any of this stuff. Make sense? Mm-hmm. Okay. So taking that, what you have to is that many times when Chassidus speaks about things, you have to kind of pay attention in context. Who are we really talking about? For instance, so when it says that we elevate the physical world, are we talking about how this plastic is now somehow changed? Or what do we mean? The divine energy that creates and enlivens the plastic, which is the true 
grounding of that plastic. That's what's changing, but I don't necessarily see a change in the plastic. Okay? Make sense? Okay. Now, as long as the soul is in the body, right? When we encounter the body, we are vicariously encountering the soul. So if I'm elevating the godly energy enlivening that piece of leather by using it for tefillin, well then, via the leather, I'm actually encountering that elevated divine energy, whether I'm aware of it or not. Say like a small child who, who's not very intelligent is hugging their parent, right? They're not just hugging their body, they're hugging the person. Even though the person has far more depth than the child can possibly understand. Does it make sense? Mm-hmm. Okay, so now, what is chapter 21 really about? Is chapter 21 really about God's perspective on the word? No. Is it about our perspective on the word? No. It's about? That's right. Because if the word, now think this, if the word sees itself as significant, then what does that make us? Significant. Having some significance. Because we're from the word, right? The word of God. So if the word sees itself as significant, Right? Then, it, then, then it is bestowing upon us some significance. And then you, God has a choice. Because remember, you have this notion that you can, you can appreciate others' perspectives. God can say, from my perspective, you're insignificant. But I can see how from your perspective. And once he does that, is he alone anymore? No. Okay, so I'm going to say that again. If God could adopt a perspective in which we are significant then that means he is no longer, even if it is not his innate perspective. So what we actually need there to be is not that from God's perspective we are insignificant. Because that that's what we got from chapter 20. What we needed to get it is that there is no perspective from which we are significant. Now, that was a problem, right? That, so that, again, for God to truly be alone, what would that require? That all perspective. That from no, right, there is no perspective in which we are significant. Now, how do you accomplish that? There's no perspective from which the divine word is. So that means the divine word can't be significant to itself. And that's really what he's trying to get at here. In other words, like this. Is it... When we say there's nothing outside of God, who has the sense that there's nothing outside of God? God or the Word? Both. Both. But what's important for our purposes in chapter 21? The Word. The Word. So the Word never feels like it's going outside of God. So then why is it called a spoken Word? Because it can be experienced by an other. That other being the creation. The divine word. Because remember, the divine word, again, what, is, what does it mean the divine word is being experienced? The divine word is creating and enlivening of things, right? In a way that those things actually sense that they're being created and being enlivened. So in that sense, the divine word is like a spoken word because a spoken word can be experienced by an other. The divine word is experienced by an other. But the divine word, when we say the divine word doesn't leave God or go outside of God, it's not from God's perspective that's not happening. It's from its perspective. Okay. 
That's what's really going on in, in, in this chapter. Okay. Before I ask a question, I want I want I want to like finish this point. Then you ask a question, then we can go to the text. Remember how I described what a unity is in Kabbalah, yeah. right? And what's the what's the analogy of a unity? Student perspectives, right? Now, Hasidus tends to prefer the analogy of a teacher and student, but I think the the, the novelty of the idea strikes home better when we use the marriage example, which is the preferred analogy in Kabbalah. What does it mean that the divine word is rooted with its source, is, is united with its source? That means they share a... That's right. That's what that means. And... If something isn't allowed in the perspective, so let's go back to the marriage example. If there is something, I'll, I'll say it both ways, even though capitalism doesn't really work both ways, but let's say there's something that is completely, there is, out of the question, there's no place for it from the husband's perspective. Well, if they have a joint perspective now for the wife, there's no place for that either. Conversely, if there's something that is absolutely necessary for the wife's perspective, and they have a joint perspective, then it's absolutely necessary from? Okay, so now, if the divine word is united with its source to the degree that our speech is united with our emotions prior to even having thought the words, right? He gives that example. How united, how joined are they? Well, think about, think about, what eventually becomes language before you even think the thought when you're just having that raw experience. It's, it's like, indis- it's literally indistinguishable, right? There's nothing, that, it's so united, there's, like, there's nothing there other than that raw experience. So to the divine word, whether it's God's words of thought or words of speech, they're that united with God. So that is their perspective. So now if you were to hear those words, what would you hear? What would they be revealing to you? God's perspective, because that's all they contain. That's only once it's united, though. No, but they start being united. I thought the whole point is that. That's later on. I brought that up just so you understand the idea that the words have their own perspective. In our chapter, everything's starting off being united. That's where we're holding. How did we say that? Well, let's look in the words. Let's read the chapter. I'm going to read the chapter now from the beginning until where we left off. And now that I say this, the flow of these, I think, will be a little bit clearer. Um, when you're saying the spoken word, where like where does it start and end? Like in the person or with God? No, with God. I'm not answering that right now. That's that's the issue we're trying to deal with. Why? Let's let's. Read. I mean, in like what we know, like Kesser. There's a reason why those things don't show up right now. You want to ask me after class? I'll tell you, but it 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 it, 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 it complicates it. However. The nature of the divine order is not like that of a creature of flesh and blood. When a man utters a word, the breath emitted in speaking is something that can be sensed and perceived as a thing apart, separate from its source, namely the ten faculties of the soul itself. Now, I'm going to stop. Is the spoken word simply sensed as something separate by a third party who hears the word? Or is it because it actually has the quality of being something separate for itself? It's actually separate, right? It's from its source. And that's why you can perceive it that way, right? Okay, now, if, you, if the spoken word now was, had a subjective experience, how would it experience it itself as something that is outside of the speaker, right? Okay. 
But with the holy and blessed be his speech is not having afraid separated from his blessed self for there's nothing outside of him and there's no place devoid of him. So first off, objectively, has the speech ever left God? No. no. Therefore, his blessed speech is not like our speech, God forbid. Skip the parentheses. Okay, well then why is it called speech? His blessed speech is called speech only by way of an anthropomorphic illustration in the sense that in the case of man below, that speech reveals to his audience that which is hidden and concealed in his thoughts. So too on, on high with that blessed Ain Sof, who's emitted life for, light and life force as emerges from him from concealment to revelation to create worlds and to sustain them is called speech. It's called speech because speech can be experienced by others. This divine energy, divine light can be experienced by others. And what, how's that seen? Because it creates and enlivens and maintains creations. Also, these emanations are the ten, and, and these are the ten, the ten fiat, the ten statements which the world was created. Likewise, a similar phenomenon with prophecy, the remainder of the Torah, the prophets, and the writings which the prophets conceived in their prophetic vision. Yet, so objectively, has the speech left God? So, from God's perspective, the speech has not left him. Okay. One second. From God's perspective, the speech has not left him. It's called speech because the speech can be experienced by. Others. That, what does it mean in that con- experience by others? means it has the effect of creating beings which have a sense of themselves. Now, at this point, by the way, we should be experiencing ourselves being enlivened by the divine speech and being created by the divine speech. And, which we don't. Which we don't, which is a separate yes. issue. Mm-hmm. That's a separate issue. Or prophetic visions, right? Yet, this so-called speech and thought are united with him in absolute union. What does that mean? What does that mean? From the perspective of those words, have they ever left God? No. How much have they not left God? For example, a person's speech and thought whilst they're still in potential in his wisdom and intellect or in desire craving in the heart prior to rising the heart to the brain, whereby cogitation, they are formulated into so-called letters. They are, in other words... The divine words are so united with God, not only do they not feel like they have gone outside of God, because there's no outside of God, they don't even feel like they are something that is in any way capable of being a distinct entity from God. Just like, again, before, when you have that raw emotion or raw awareness, the language of thought isn't there yet. It's only when you kind of slightly move away, the language of thought starts to develop in your mind. But these words, these letters, as they were, are so united with God, meaning what? They share God's perspective so deeply and so innately, they have no sense of being outside of God. They even have no sense of being significant. An entity inside of God. An entity inside of God. As far as they're concerned, there's just God. That's what they carry with them. So now if they were to reveal, if they are going to be spoken words, words that reveal, what would they bring about? Perspective. For at the time of letters of thought and speech were evolved from their long desire, they were still potential at heart, where they were absolutely fused with the root. That's the key word, fused. So fused that they are indistinguishable from the root name of the wisdom, intellect, the brain, and the long desire of the heart. Okay, so now we have an issue. Because it is not, if the words know that they've never left God, can they be perceived as having left God? Yes. Think back. No, uh, think, let's think back for a second. Well, uh, uh, before, 
when, you, when a human being speaks, why can you perceive my words as outside of me? Well, the answer is very obvious because the words are actually. Why are you able to perceive a 500-pound gorilla as a 500-pound gorilla? Because it is. That's right. Why are you able to perceive a sunny day as a sunny day? It's something which has never left God shouldn't be able to be perceived as something which has. It, and again, and, that, and that's what it's carrying with itself, within itself. It's not like God is looking at it from my perspective never left me. The word's like, I've never left God. I, the, the, the word has nothing within itself that exudes any notion of it having left God. Moreover, not just having left God like words, spoken words, not even having left God in the way your thoughts haven't even emerged from the raw desires of the psyche. So it's not like, it's not like, like we understand that thoughts have not left that, but we're still aware of. Right, because they have to some degree left the raw experience. It's, right, it's not, right, that's why he's saying, how unified are the, again, the spoken words of God to God? Meaning, how much do those words carry with them the same sense of God's perspective? Fully. Fully. How fully? Like? They're fused as one. Fused as one. How fused? Like your thoughts before you've thought them when they're still just raw emotions. Now, if that's the thing that is being revealed, that's the thing that is being heard to create the worlds, do you end up with a reality of anything? No. Right, so there's something incomplete in this picture. I mean, what you would end up with is that whether God says the words or doesn't say the words, he's still going to be alone either way. That would be true. So the question is, where does the separateness even come from? Right, right. In other words, now we've, now we've gone so far to God being alone, we don't even understand like where... The, I mean, there clearly is some kind of a notion of creating a world, right? It does say in the Torah. The way it is now, like, if let's say someone looks at you and says, you're sad, and you know that you're totally happy, and you're like, like, like where are you getting that from? Like, like, we just think that that person's out there. Like okay, so, so there, there is an obvious answer that many people give to this problem, which the ultimate does not give. And I'm going to tell you the answer, which is, I think, what you were addressing. Yeah, I'm just going to look and, at it. And I'm going to explain to you why not. Well, I know why. It's because we don't see it that way. Like, we see it differently, right? I mean, after all, it's our perspective, right? I mean, you know, I mean, sometimes people look at a person who's happy and they think that they're sad, even though they're not sad at all, right? So sometimes you look at the divine word that's totally united and fused with God and you see it as separate and distinct because, you know, that's your perspective on the divine word, right? Why not? Mm-hmm. That doesn't make any sense. And the reason, why it doesn't, no, the reason why it doesn't make any sense is because the divine word doesn't stand in relationship with the creation in the same way that we stand in relationship with other things. So let me explain to you what I mean. My perception of you is a negotiation of two things. How you actually are, right? And my, and, 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 and what I bring to the act of perception. So for instance, we know that for instance, there's a psychological notion of projection, right? If I'm in a bad mood or I think someone dislikes me, I'm very likely to perceive that in others, right? Now, I'm, I'm very unlikely to perceive you as a 700-pound gorilla, right? I would say at that point, like the, 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 you know, my, my faculties of perception have just broken completely. Okay? But you're a person, and I perceive you as a person. A person is capable of being sad. I am sad. 
and I conflate my own experience of my sadness, project that onto you, and now I perceive you as being sad, right? So there's a conflation between what you're bringing to the table and what I'm bringing to the table, right? That's a common phenomena, right? That's how we have a lot of interpersonal conflicts. This doesn't work with the divine word and created entities. Why not? What do created entities bring to the table? Judgment. Nothing. Think about it. How do the created entities come into being? Divine word. What, what gives them their character, their properties? The divine word. What maintains them? If you remove the divine word in any way from them, what happens? So can the creation bring anything to the table? So the creation's perspective on the divine word is only a function of how the divine word actually is. You see why the, 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 there, there's, there, there's something, we always have to remember when we're carrying things over, never to forget that there is a basic difference between any kind of human experience and God, which is that God creates reality and we don't. Okay, so. Why can't that just be the answer? Well, so I have a problem. If God, if the divine word, so the divine word is fused with God so that its perspective on itself is like God's perspective on it. So it has no sense of having ever left God. It has no sense of being distinctive from God in any way. Again, the analogy for those two ideas is like the way your thoughts have exist prior to actually thinking of them when they're still in the state of raw emotion. At that point, should those words be able to be perceived as something which is imbuing a distinct amount of light and energy and purpose into a specific creation? That doesn't make any sense. They shouldn't be able to create things. All they should be able to do is to perpetuate a sense of God. So, like, solving the God being alone problem, we're done with. Like, yeah, God's alone, right? Those, whether those words are, 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 whether those words reveal or don't reveal, that doesn't matter, well, right? The problem is, the way we've described these words now doesn't seem to generate any notion of a created reality at all. So we've gone from one extreme to the other, okay? But you see how, like, you can't really get what he's saying if you still think, if you think the issues is that we're talking about how God looks at the word, because it's how God looks at the word, but the problem doesn't exist. Okay, so God looks at the word this way, but the word still has its characteristics and we see the word differently, right? I can look at something and see it as small and you can look at the same thing and see it as big and that's not a problem. But if the thing is blue and my eyesight is working perfectly, I can't see it as red. If the divine word is itself insignificant because it is fused with God, its perspective on itself is God's perspective on it, then it can't be seen as giving, you know, distinct, concrete, divine energy and purpose to a specific creation to serve a specific purpose. Like that, that just can't happen. So we have a problem. That is a really dangerous game, isn't it? Because like, I mean, yeah, yeah. it seems really scary to say that it's a possibility that, well, if that's the perspective of the divine word, which is essentially just united with God from its perspective, and from God's perspective, nothing actually exists, then what the divine word creates also doesn't actually exist. Well, what it, what it, what it, what it creates, well, let me, let me, let me put it here. What it creates is a sense of the fact that nothing, other than God, nothing exists. That would be, because remember, what makes it a spoken word is that it is, Real to others. Real to others. Right. But what kind of an other would it create? 
an other that has a sense that there's nothing other than God. I don't know what kind of an other that is. That's a. What are we? I guess we are. We are something that is nothing other than knowledge that there's nothing other than God. Some kind of like weird thing like that. How does this connect back to what you said about? But, but uh, that's later. That's what I said. I was cheating when I was bringing that up. I, bringing that up was simply a way of making the idea a little bit... Like, like, we don't understand that yet, no. Right, right. It's the same reason like we don't understand now, that. Right, now we have a separate problem, which is that the, 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 <laughs> the, the, the godliness may have its own perspective, but it doesn't have it, but it doesn't, but it's, but, but it's so unified with God's perspective that it doesn't, that, right? Okay. So we would need to somehow deal with this problem. Okay. All right. Good? All right. Verily so, by way of example of the speech and thought of the Holy and Blessed be, he absolutely united with his blessed essence and being even after his blessed speech has already become materialized in the creation of the worlds, just as it was united with him ere the worlds, which means before the worlds were created. Right? Thus, there is no manner of change in his blessed self. Okay. But only for the created beings which receive their life force from this blessed word as it, as it were, in its revealed state in the creation of the worlds. Now, you say, wait a minute. I mean, how is there a change? Like, if God doesn't have spoken words, then the only thing is that there's God. That's the only perspective there is. Even the words have a perspective there's only God, right? And then divine words go into a state of revelation, so they can be perceived by others. But other, they would be perceived by others in accordance with what they are. So how would the others perceive them? As one of God. As that there's nothing other than God. So these others that would be created would be just a sense of there's nothing other than God. They wouldn't even have a sense of themselves having a sense that there's nothing other than God because that would, that would, right. So then, like, how is there a change at all? And he's saying there is a change, but the change is just to who? Creation. Creation. Because I don't want you to have the problem, right? Let's make the problem clear. We have God's perspective, the divine word's perspective, and the creation's perspective, right? God's perspective is nothing other than God. There's nothing outside of God. The word's perspective is that it's united with God. So it, right, like, you know, how united and how fused, again, like the spoken word before it was even thought, being still in the raw emotions. Okay. So its perspective is God's perspective. Now, when it gets revealed and something experiences the spoken word, all of a sudden it's having a sense that, ooh, I was created and I'm a fish or a dog or a tree or an angel. So to who's having, who, who, is, have, who is having this, who is experiencing the change of creation? The creation. But the problem is, as I said before, is where is the creation getting its sense of reality from? From the spoken word. But the spoken word sense is that there's only God. So something isn't lining up. And he addresses this. Giving them life through a process of gradual descent from cause to effect and a downward gradation by means of numerous and various contractions until the created beings can receive their life and existence from it without losing their entity. Okay. We have a few minutes left. I'm going to say the basic idea. Okay? And then next week we will discuss this idea thoroughly and we'll continue the chapter after this. Can the creations have anything that they do not receive from the divine word. So if the creations have the notion of have being a distinct entity, mm-hmm. even a distinct entity that's totally devoted to God, but a distinct entity, they must be receiving that from the divine word. Now, what's the divine word's perspective? So can the divine word be 
can the can the can the creation see the divine word for what the divine word really is? No. What do you call it when someone presents one way, even though they are really different? Hypocrite. <laughs> That's fine. I like this word. This is good because this will help us understand the difference between chapter 21 and chapter 22. There is something deceitful, something false. If the divine, in other words, the divine word's own take on itself is... I never left God. There's nothing other than God. I'm not even a. I'm not even a distinct, specific revelation of God. There's just right. That that's divine word sense on, of itself. But the divine word does what? How does it present itself to its audience? That's a right. Okay. So now the creation is this entity, right, to itself. But that entire thing is predicated on a false presentation. It's deceitful. So the divine word is making us think that we are being enlivened by a divine energy that creates people and trees and things. But really, what's happening? So right. So from God's perspective, there's nothing but God. From the divine word's perspective, there's nothing from God, right? From our perspective, we came into existence. But how could we come into existence from our perspective? If everything we get is from the divine word, is because the divine word is what? Is being hypocritical, is being deceitful, is presenting itself to us through what it calls various contractions, so that what we're actually perceiving is not the truth of the divine word anymore, is it? That's weird. So that means our whole existence is predicated on. That's right. (laughs) So now, so before God created the world, there was only God. After He created the world, there's still only God. But He's lying to us when He tells us that we exist. That's and he knows he's lying as he's saying it. That's, that, that's what comes out of this. I want to be clear, right? What comes out of here. The words that are telling you you're a human being know that you can't be a human being. There's no such thing as a human being. There's no such thing as nothing other God. But... Where all my problems started, my insecurities. Right? Now, I do want to be clear. Chapter 22 removes the deceitful notion impl- implied here. That, that what's going to shift in chapter 21 to chapter 22 is that he's going to bring some level of reality to this. But that's, I want to be clear, that's only chapter 20. If you end at chapter 21, the conclusion you should reach is, in what sense do we come into existence as created entities? The right. Well, the it's, essence is still true, just the way we perceive it is a lie. What's the essence? That it's a creation from God. That's right. And what's creating the creation? The word. And, what's the, and what is the truth of the word? That is so then what's the truth of the creation? That, it's one of that there's nothing other than? God. And so the addition of... So what's that? What's that, what's that? No, no, not as part of God. Cause, 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 because we don't say the creation is united with God. We say the creation is being created by, right? There's still a difference there. If you want, I can talk about that. Not right now. But. So then what's the creation? The creation is, 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 is the revealing the truth that there's nothing other than God. I mean, if you're alone and you reveal the fact that you're alone, I guess you're still... Aerologist is alone. But if the result, the entities that are created by you revealing that you're alone are being lied to in the process to think that they now are distinct (laughs) entities. Well, I mean, you know that you're alone, but they think you're not alone anymore, but they're just wrong. So the creation is not there, but the the thing that created it is the truth? The divine... 
if the divine word is united with God, then as far as the divine word is concerned, the only thing that is there is God. Good. When the divine word reveals itself and goes from a thinking word to a spoken word, and things come into being, right? Because that's the idea of a spoken word is that it can now experienced by others. Does it reveal itself authentically or does it reveal itself with some measure of deceit, some measure of... Uh, of so the speech is the lie. The speech is lying. Mm-hmm. The kind of speech that Shem created the world with is Shem. No, the speech... No, no, no. The, the speech is not... But the speech is not lying. The, the speech is not a lie. The power of speech is not a lie, but the words it chooses is a lie. Can I? Can, I mean, let me give you an analogy. Can I say the truth? My, my, I have a kid who does this all the time. Can I say the truth, yeah. knowing full well that the words I'm saying, even though they're true, will be misunderstood, and use that as a method of lying? Ooh. I have a son who does this. <laughs> it's like, like, did you hit your sister? I never. I didn't hit my sister. I didn't touch her all day. And then I find out that, like, you know, he, uh, threw, something. he threw something at her or whatever, right? It's like, <laughs> I don't mean to say this is, uh, other words, we'll talk more about this. We'll go into the words. There's, there's more details to this, right? But what the, the idea is, the idea is that there's a difference between the truth of the divine words and how the divine words are appearing. And since what makes them spoken words is the effect they have on others, as far as we're concerned, it's not what they are that matters, it's what they, how they present how they appear but how they appear doesn't reflect what they really are so the words are bringing to us a sense that there's nothing other than God and doing it in such a way that we don't realize that's what's happening and what we think is happening is that we're coming into being as people or dogs or cats and so we think like oh God created us and we're so significant because God really wants us to be people and blah 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 but the truth is God is alone and he's just like being very open about it that he's alone in a, in a very misleading way <laughs> We're not done, by the way. Just keep in mind. We're, we're not done. Okay. And, um, yeah. People say Hasidus is easy, right? No. That's a lie. Okay. I hope this, introducing that idea helped make it put everything a little bit more pun intended in perspective. Yes. Okay, there's a, so, so there's a very important idea. This is not in the class, but this is a very important idea. There is a very big difference between we speak about godliness and creations. We never say, and if we do, we don't mean it literally, that creations are united with God. We can say that godliness is united with God or godliness is united with other levels of godliness. So now, if I were to say that when you, you, you do a mitzvah, you unite the world with God, what do I mean? I mean the godliness that is the truth of the world, the godliness that creates the world, the godliness that is grounding the world, which for whatever reason we haven't explained is somehow disconnected from God, is now being reunited with God. So now, right, so now the physicality, if you, the physicality is being enlivened by something much loftier, and we relate to things, hopefully, not based on... So that's not going to go away. Like, the actual physicality, like, even if you said that she created it just for a deer or whatever, it's still going to stay here because... Yeah. That makes so much sense. Why? 
That's also like we're, like we're always going to do mitzvahs. Mashiach comes to do mitzvahs. Tzchias Mason comes to do mitzvahs. Yeah, yeah. The, the 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 meaning of the mitzvah, the experience of the mitzvah, how much I struggled with it, that's going to, you know. Our mission will just be to constantly unite the names of the Exactly. Like, you could never not get more unique. Right. And then we'll ask them about, like, where does the spoken word start? Like, anything besides the name of Okay, so now the spoken word, the spoken word is what's called generally the chatsonius of malchus. That's it? That's the spoken word. Malchus generally, the chatsenis and malchus in particular. Is that starting from Kesson? No. Because I thought from... I don't even know. One second, one second. Okay. Now, in other words, in other words, the spoken word is what's called Isis of Malchus. The thinking word is what's called Isis Sabina. You asked. Now, the truth of the matter is because Kabbalah has a kind of fractal nature, which means that everything can really be used to describe everything else. If I talk, I can... So even though there is an actual level of godliness called Malchus of the world of Atzils, which is, which, which is where the spoken word comes from that creates the world, I can then take that idea and, and make it very loftier and then shift, instead of talking about creations, I can to some degree talk about like the spirits and, and other things. And I just, 